0: You got to see their ability to fail. I can tell immediately how long you're going to be in this sport. And after conversation, after running through fitting and sizing with you and working with you, and especially if we get to ride together a couple times, not every day is great, but it's an endurance sport. It's an endurance play. Hey, everybody.
1: This is Driven By with Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear people that see a need and they do something about it. You're going to hear what drives them, lessons learned along the way, how they built it, and how things are evolving, yet still today. It is great to have you on the show. For more information, go to podcast.sampcoats.com. That's podcast.sampcoats.com and subscribe to our weekly email list. And check out my show on Twitter, Instagram, at Sam P. This show can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts at Driven By with Sam Coates. If you like the show, please spread the word, tell a friend and leave a review and check out previously recorded episodes. I hope you have a great day. My guest this week is Clark Butcher. Clark is a cyclist and the owner of Victory Bicycle Studio. I wanted to have Clark on the show for a few reasons. First, I read earlier this year that when he was asked how he thinks about COVID-19, and how it affects his business. He said that they would continue to serve and deliver a customized service to his clients and focus on that. In other words, it struck me that he was playing offense when it was common to think defensively. Secondly, why cycling? What has he learned about the sport? What are some of the drivers that make you love the sport? What can anyone learn about endurance sports? Why are these things pertinent to what he does today and more? This week's episode is the first of two episodes where next week we take a deeper dive into building a business and all the ups and downs along the way. Hey everybody, I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi, in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to matthaga.com, that's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com, and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S efficient clean and easy to work with ab jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS that's j-e-t-s now we're going to get back to the show Clark man great to see you thanks for coming down absolutely Man, I've read and heard you've talked about biking, that it's the one place
0: where you experience freedom and clarity of thought. When did you first realize that? Not early on cycling, that's for sure. You know, I'm a, I'm a super competitive guy, and obviously right out the gate, my thought with cycling was competition and racing, and it was that for, gosh, almost 18 years. But it was in those later years that I knew that uh, racing was going to stop soon, and I started going for rides more than going for training. You know, it's a difference between riding and training. Both are great. I found out too late on that uh, both are equally important. You got to ride and you also have to train. And uh, it wasn't until just going for a ride with no headphones in and no agenda and uh, meaning no, no purpose of the ride, no interval workout to get in, no structure, no nothing, just and I had time and I wanted to go ride my bike. Yeah. And it wasn't until then out at Shelby Forest, all of a sudden I started hearing the birds and stuff <laughs> like that, stuff I had never heard because I was just so laser focused on whatever workout was in front of me or, or, or whatever music was blaring in my ears. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely a little bit late on that I learned that riding uh, could be that way. So was that early 20s? No, it would definitely probably be early 30s. Okay you started racing elite when you were
1: 18. And obviously I know you rode well before that at a young age. How can you think about, or how can you talk about that kind of ruthless sense of being competitive and ambition when it comes to cycling and, and training? How did that kick in in high school and then how did it affect other areas of life as well?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the guys I raced with, you know, growing up, I was never the strongest. In fact, I was most commonly the weakest on the team, now given the team was already a selection of the best, but I was rarely the strongest, but I paid attention and and that's where I learned how to read races and that's where my forte came about. And uh, while on paper, you know, and in, in, in testing and in physiology testing and seeing what kind of wattage and what kind of power you can produce, I was never the highest, but, uh, but I'd consistently place higher just because I could read the race and understand it and you know, it wasn't until I realized that I was a select individual that would have that kind of ability on the bike that I got super competitive, you know, and, and I wanted to better it and every single performance I wanted to better. And, you know, I ached to throw my hands in the air. Like, you know, it's funny looking back now, I'm like, dude, why? <laughs> like you weren't going to the Olympics, you know, like we have this saying in physiology that's always said, uh, you want to go to the Olympics, pick your parents well you know, basically there's no equipment, there's no training, there's no nothing that can do the same as genetics can do. And, and, and there's a lot of validity to that, but, you know, I look back now and I'm like, God, why? Cause man, I was sacrifices all my life. I mean, it was, it was sacrifices on health. I mean, you, you were trained. It's, it's an endurance sport. You know, this is not, this wasn't soccer. There was no such thing as a tournament where you go and play eight times on a weekend this this was a an endurance sport, and that meant endurance both in terms of the aerobic and the long distance but it's a, it's endurance in that dude, careers are not made in one race or rarely made in one race it's just it's it's such a long term play and I think probably for my a d d and it was just a it was a match and the repetition and you know as well as man I wouldn't tell recently cycling was cool yeah. Growing up, I always like to tout, I was one of four registered juniors in the state of Tennessee to race, meaning uh, you have a racing license under the age of 18 and uh, marks you as a junior. There was four. Y'all, there's over 450 now. Mm. So let me tell you what, like growing up in public schools with shaved legs and, and, and living to get on your bike when you're 12, wasn't that cool? Yeah. But it was cool to me and I was really good at it. And in my space, I was really cool. And I think that's why it was a match, you know, I mean, definitely a nerd on paper and a nerd on the looks, but man, in my space, I was the man, you know? <laughs> yeah. Did you
1: ever think about quitting early on or in those high school years?
0: Not in high school years. Never a thought. That's all I wanted to do. So,
1: I mean, you were all in that whole time.
0: Uh, thought of quitting happened once and it was, it was well on later, but it was, uh, and it's only happened once and, uh, but yeah, no, in high school, man, I was on a mission. Yeah. I wanted to get out of class as fast as possible so I could get home and get on my bike. I mean, that was by myself. Occasionally would meet a buddy. Yeah. You know, there was, there was one other dude in town that was our pace and, and could hang. But man, I hung out with much older guys growing up that were into the sport too. You know, so it's you know about my age now. You know, and during the week, it was by myself on the weekend. I was riding with these other, you know, older dudes and learning from them.
1: Yeah. Are there parts in your life now, even if it's not cycling, that you're that intense about?
0: Business for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, look, I'm, uh, you can hear it in my voice. I'm completely addicted. You know, that, that is, uh, no, my business is my livelihood. I've done the heavy lifting. It's the ground up. I couldn't be more proud.
1: With business, are there seasons either through finances or through marriage, or through just work relationships, et cetera, how do you think about that when there's not like kind of the childlike innocence or that youth of when you want to compete and you want to drive and it carries over, but what about other things where it seems like there's more consequences or more dynamics with the relationships and stuff like that? Do you still have that kind of complete all-in mindset all the time or maybe feel things more acutely and then you just keep driving just because you kind of know what you want? You're not going to stop.
0: That, man, great question. Oh, huh. uh, thanks. I, th- I would answer that question very differently five years ago, you know, and uh, we just celebrated 10 years in business, right? Like monumental. Congrats, man. Monumental. Thank you. And and, and it's one, like, it's the biggest bummer is we couldn't throw a big party, right? Because right. unfortunately, with the times we're living right now, but, you know, I would answer that differently five years ago. I was all in, laser focused. If you got in my way, bro, good luck. You know, and, and uh, a good mentor of mine once said, uh, I called him up. I was being challenged by a competitor, or what I thought was a competitor at the time. And, and he goes, man, if he tries to compete with you on sales, may, may God help him. And, and, and it was right that he didn't tell me what to do. He just gave me that confidence. And, and it drove into me and I was laser focused and God help you. If you got in my way, man, like this is, this is my space. And now it's totally different. Now I'm, you know, it's, I'm so satisfied. I'm so happy with what's happened and how it's grown in this community and how sustainable it's become. And, you know, we just hired another full timer. I mean, like the business is not just like fun, but it's also, it's, We've made it sustainable with this model that I've built. And, and so I answer that question now with, it is quite different because now I'm, I'm not chasing every single sale. Mm. Rather, I'm chasing the sale of my customers. And, you know, it kind of goes back on what I said earlier. At the time, I thought it was a competitor. Just like at the time, I thought a lot of people were customers. And, you know, my wife said to me one time, and, you know, I deal with strong personalities, Uh, I'm a strong personality, right? Yeah. Men, women, alphas that
1: want to drive and want a very expensive bike and and want to pursue it and be as good as they possibly can. You know,
0: and it's specialty retail, right? So even if you're spending 400 bucks, which we've got product for you is, is it's specialty retail. So, so you're coming for this specialty experience and, and it just obviously, uh, expectations go up and I, obviously I hope they do. And so we deal with these strong personalities in a in in this environment. And my wife said to me one time when I was, you know, I'd I'd make a quote, I'd work my butt off, I'd fit the guy for this custom bike, we'd label it all out, I'd send this real, you know, robust proposal, how it all works out, costs associated and everything. And then it'd be like radio silence, or I'd be led on again. And, you know, I'd just get more deeper and deeper in these big projects. And finally she said to me, you know, after, I don't know how many of these things that I'd lost the deal on, you know, at the time I was lost the deal. And she goes, Hey, they're not a customer. <laughs> like, of course they went and bought that exact thing. You pitched them somewhere else. Cause you're right. Like, of course they did, but screw them. They're not a customer. And, and I say that as like, it took me years to realize that. And, and, and it made me ill, man. I mean, I, I'm telling you, like I took it personal, right? Like I yeah. spent my time. So now I do things a little differently and, and it's got to be something like, I don't want to work more. Like I, I'm totally addicted to what I do. I work endless hours, but I don't want to do more. Everything's not just for years it was work. I don't believe in work smarter, not harder. I, I can't stand that quote. <laughs> Dude, do that and see how long it takes your business to grow. Really do that. You'll never learn if you don't work hard, man. And, you know, I busted my butt for a solid eight years in this space. I mean, worked hard, got worked, and I learned from every single one of them, you know, and that's why I say now I can work smarter, not harder. But you can't do that early on. I would never have figured out where I was supposed to land and how this business was supposed to play out.
1: Yeah. Going back to when you were talking about not being the strongest or fastest or having the best genes, you talked about, you could learn how to read the races. And once you figure that out, that kind of ignited this drive to want to compete. What was that like? Or what do you mean by that specifically?
0: Racing is a ton. There's a ton of strategy involved and rarely, rarely does the strongest man on the starting line win the race. Very rarely. And they, they, they ingrain that in our minds, you know, and, we were doing these USA cycling junior camps growing up and, you know, they're really trying to mature us as athletes, both on the bike and off the bike and, and, and really ingrained that in our mind. And that was, you know, control the controllables. These were things that if the strongest guy at the race ate his breakfast 30 minutes late, none of that matters, right? Like control the controllables. If the strongest guy at the race wasn't dialed on his nutrition during, doesn't matter. He won't be there in the end. So Control the controllables is something that I took and I've ingrained in my mindset into everything. And as a retailer, control the controllables is is an imperative, right? Like running out of inventory. Like there are certain things you can't control there, but you should have up to a certain point. You know, and any retailer right now listening to this is, is nodding their head. Like <laughs> we, you've done it before, right? The only way you learn is to screw up and not have road bike tubes going into a Saturday, <laughs> you know, but control the controllables in racing, you know, it was dialing in the details. Like I still to this day, I know every single ride, what tire pressure is in each tire. I know how many calories are in each bottle. I know how many calories are in my pockets and which pocket they're in, right. I'm fueling on the bike. I've strategized the lens that I'm wearing for the conditions I'm in I've strategized the helmet I'm wearing for the conditions I'm in like every single thing I could control is done and that's from diet leading up and training leading up to day of and final prep and and same thing happens in racing right so the more races you do the more experience you have and learning where and when to go full gas and learning where and when to hide out and learning uh, who to follow and who not to follow like you learn that by following the wrong dude. You can't <laughs> yeah. you, like you have to learn that. And, and by being on someone's wheel and watching how their hips change going into a turn, I learned very quickly if I'm going to be behind that person ever again in that turn. Right. So while most people are just hanging on or looking at the wheel in front of them, I'm analyzing and strategizing every single person in this group. And and that was my forte, and 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 it took years and a lot of racing, right? I was definitely a work harder. Yeah, uh, I did a lot of races for a lot of years, and so that's where, yeah, learning to read a race, and it's still to this day like I'm a huge fan. I'm addicted. I watch cycling. I listen. I, you know, I leave retail. I go home and I watch cycling. Yeah, and I love reading the race, and I love knowing the the the, the riders going into it, but I also love reading what's happening. Yeah, it's just it's fun. It's not chess. I don't want to, I don't want to make you th- think like that. I was never very good at chess, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's strategy. It's a lot of strategy and it's a lot of paying attention at the end of the day. how did you start riding? Started riding by running. Uh, I grew up in a, in a household. My dad was a big runner, you know, and, and now there's five K's every single weekend, right? Every Saturday and Sunday. And now there's multiple five K's every Saturday and Sunday. And, Okay, again, it was not like that when I was seven growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. So my dad would, you know, every 5K he'd go do, or gosh, buddy, there's a 10K. He'd go do that. You know, my dad's the man. Yeah. And all of a sudden the 5K started having one mile fun runs at every one of their events. And it was a way to like, you know, bring the family with you too. And so I would do the one mile fun run. And usually they'd hold it like right after the 5K so that my dad could do that. And then he'd run that with me. And, Ready for it? I'm going to call them out. It was the Mayor's Cup 5K in Germantown (laughs) on the Shoba. It was held from uh, Cameron Brown Park. This was, I was seven, so I'd have to look back and figure out what year that is. But we get there, and unfortunately, the turnout was so low, we're not going to have the one-mile fun run today. I'm I'm sorry, folks. Dude, devastated. (laughs) (laughs) Devastated. Uh, So my dad said, hey, well, how about this? How about run with me in the 5K and when we get to half a mile in, we'll turn around pro total pro. <laughs> so we get going and he goes, Hey, why don't, why don't, why don't you just tell me when you get tired and we'll, we'll stop. Or we'll turn around. And, uh, and we did it. And I was seven and who knows how long it took. It was not a, it was, you know, man, I'm seven. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Oh, I was hooked, you know? And from then on my dad was like, Hey, so you can do it. So from seven on every 5k he did, I did. And uh, let's see. By the time I was nine, I was already up to the half marathon point because wow. the Memphis runners allowed runners in at age nine. Yeah, I think I still hold the youngest ever in the road race series in <laughs> Memphis, wow. age nine. But at age nine, there was uh, in commercial appeal. There was an article for a, a iron bread. You remember iron bread? The uh-uh. um, it was like Wonder bread, but I think it was like a marketed towards kids eating eating their bread. And it was I is the iron bread. It iron? Yeah, it was ironbred. Ironbred kids triathlon at the Germantown Center. And my dad said, Hey, I saw this in the paper. I'm going to sign you up for it. Okay, dude, I don't swim. I still don't swim. I had a BMX bike. Yeah. And like, don't swim at all. Don't yeah, like I really don't like swimming, man. Okay. I'll I'll sit by the pool, I'll wade in the pool with you, but I just don't like submerging my head in water. Okay. Um, snorkeling's fun. That's kind of fun. But yeah, and they sign me up for the triathlon. We go and do it. I'm on my BMX bike, you know, of course, terrible in the water. Come out on the bike, and I get back, do the run, obviously, finish up. And I go, Dad, like, I think I should be biking. Like, I passed everyone on the bike. You know, the, the, dude, it's a BMX bike, you know, on, like, flat roads. A lot of the kids had mountain bikes and road bikes, and some of the real kids had, like, tri bikes. And, yes, yeah, so it was very shortly after saved up. Let's see. The first one was a road bike. It took a couple of years. So I was big into Boy Scouts at the time. So it took a couple of years to get my first bike, but I got my first bike uh, when I was 11 or 12 road bike. That is. Yeah. And it was too big. It would still be too big, which is funny. Looking back at the <laughs> photos today, like there, it still wouldn't fit. Yeah. I sat on the top tube of this thing. I, you know, I'd saved up allowance money and I called every shop in town. Do you sell used bikes? Cause I knew, new was totally out of my price point. I had 200 bucks, maybe 250 bucks. Yeah. And, uh, said, I do. I said, do you have any road bikes? I said, I do. I said, I'll take it. I'm on my way. And I think it was uh it was it was sub 250 bucks for sure, but it was an old Peugeot. And I sat on the top two of this thing and dude, I signed up for every single race I could find. I was hooked. Was your dad driven? Would you say he's ambitious? Ambitious, goal driven, yes. My dad and I are very different when it comes to business and, and stuff on that front, but goal driven for sure. For sure. And and then also just he and I just We've got these addictive personalities and, you know, he ingrained fitness in me at such a young age. I mean, I went to the JCC before Riverdale Elementary. Mm. Dude, he ingrained it in me. So in the military or something? No, just loved man, love staying healthy, love being fit, and it's pretty intense just stuck it in me and and so really that's that's kind of where I got a lot of this from, and then the repetition, obviously, and my dad was has never uh, and he'll be laughing right now, he has never been the fastest at anything, yeah. Like, like not remotely, like doesn't understand training. Like, so that whole side of me, he does not have, we don't know where that came from. You know, Um, you know, he, he, you know, reading and control the control dude can't control any control. (laughs) not a single one, but yeah, man, but very, very, very goal driven. So then you go off
1: and you race elite at 18 after you graduate high school and you had been racing very heavily this whole time. And then you you take two years off of college, is that right? And you went out to Durango. So I I assume going to Durango was for a reason.
0: Yeah. Look, I was very fortunate growing up. My folks made it clear like, hey, any college we can afford, we'll send you to. Really? And I was never studious, by the way, ever. Uh, I mean, my dad even ingrained me. He's like, dude, don't work real hard in high school. Like none of that matters. And I'm telling you, I was a BC student. I was not a great student you know, and it's going off to college. I picked a school based on where I wanted to ride. And so we went out one year to go tour colleges like you, like you do. And, uh, we looked at Fort Lewis, obviously, uh, CU Boulder, Colorado state, uh, and Fort Collins came back and I'll never forget. And dad was like, mom, sit me down. Like, where do you, where do you want to go? And I remember I go Boulder <laughs> and my dad goes, okay, here's the deal. So I don't think you're going to make it. Like, I don't think you're going to make it in. And if you do get in, like, we cannot take care of all four years. Like, we got you for a good, like, year and a half or two. And they go, well, what's your second choice? I go, Fort Lewis and Durango. I like it. They go, so, and, you know, man, they lean in. They're like, you need to go there. You're going to do Great. <laughs> And uh, Fort List did not have the highest of standards in terms of testing or anything to get in. But most importantly to me, man, it had the most mountains. It was the best place to ride. Yeah. Yeah. Climbing was my forte. Makes no sense coming out of Memphis. There's obviously no climbs around here, but I was little. Man, I was 118 pounds when I started college. (laughs) And I was probably a staggering 5'4", maybe 5'3". So, yeah, I could go uphill fast. So I just wanted to be in the mountains. And that's where the choice of Colorado came from originally. And... So, yeah, it was funny kind of going back to college after after pulling out to race. Um, but, yeah, it was funny. As soon as I had made the choice to race, obviously uh, parental funding got shut off, yeah. right? Dude, you're not going to live in Colorado and just race. So, no, they're smart. Came back home. Uh, the team was based out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, so logistically it made sense. And, yeah, so it's about a five-hour drive or so from Memphis, um so yeah I'd live here with my folks in Cordova for 4 days a week and then typically would hit the road and with most races being based out of Fort Smith we raced all over predominantly at the time you know really Texas Arkansas Oklahoma Missouri you know you're really kind of positioned right there and then and then obviously we'd we'd travel quite a bit too for the for the bigger national stuff.
1: What do you think gave you the confidence to go your own way? And what have you seen through other people that you're either close with or trained with where they too go their own way? For example, there's obviously a history and a love that you have here with cycling that dictated where you went to college. But A, to continue to just have that drive for cycling throughout high school, but then B, to be able to drop out of college and to not really be concerned, maybe what people think to live and and do things in the way that you feel like you need to or the way you should. Can you maybe say anything about what that experience has been like and how maybe that has affected some of these decisions even to today with going into a different career field initially and then launching your own cycling studio?
0: You know, it was in me for a while and I saw a lot of success on the bike early on and uh, a lot of folks would come and ask me for advice. How do I get stronger? What are you doing? Or what are you pumping your tires to? Or what are you drinking? Right. And folks started coming to me for advice. And quickly I thought, which is this is where it turns out I had an entrepreneurial mindset is I thought, well, man, I should coach them. Right. Like I had a coach and folks were coming up to me. In, and in high school, me questions. you had a coach? In high school, I had a coach. Okay. And then, uh, from, from then on. And so, you know, go to my dad, I'm telling him like, man, people are coming to me for advice and I've got these ideas. And he says, well, hey, not till you turn 18 because you're going to need liability insurance because they're not suing me. (laughs) Okay, so turn 18 soon after high school and get liability insurance and launch a coaching business. And coaching business was small in college. It grew and grew and grew. And even though I was studying exercise science, I decided to go take a business course. This is freshman year, you know. It's like some business one hundred and one, whatever the most you know basic level is. And I go in there, and I walked out. By the way, the story <laughs> ends with me walking out the first day in this one class. Uh, where I then went to uh, what do you call it? Administrator? What was it called? There's somebody you went to, anyways, that like helped you navigate and get your hours in and make sure you got your credits. Obviously, I don't remember. Yeah. I wasn't there I mean, long yeah, enough. I'm not the best person. To so. So anyways, it was, I'm in this business course and there it's, it's supply and demand, you know, it's on the whiteout board and I'm sitting there and I'm listening. Meanwhile, I have a coaching business that's growing rapidly. While you're in Colorado. While I'm in Colorado, coaching folks now in Colorado and all over Memphis. I'm in Arkansas and word's spreading because I'm working my butt off and, and quickly I'm like sitting there and I'm kind of analyzing the situation. I'm like, man, I make more than this teacher does. I'm in college, I'm out. Like I, I, everything he's saying, I've never heard these words, but like I know what he means because I can put it in a scenario that I've lived and experienced. Like I, what am I? This doesn't make sense. Leave. I'm gonna shift everything over to exercise science. This is literally, I think, second week of college. <laughs> Everything next to exercise science. Why? Why? Because I could at least put that to practice immediately, and selfishly, I was pumped to learn stuff, and I could apply it literally immediately on the bike or in my diet or whatever in the way I was living. and Like a first principles kind of thinking. Oh, it was awesome. You know, I, I studied it because I enjoyed it, not because I thought there'd be some profession at the end of the play, you know, training a cycling team or something like that, and... And just did it because I loved it. So, so that was ingrained in me early on, right? This is this coaching practice and the coaching built and built and built and ultimately had a couple guys that were working for me. And once I came back here to sell real estate, that's when all of a sudden like really did a lot of grind, did a ton of learning, learned a ton, met a lot of people, learned how to talk. And that entrepreneurial spirit, right? Like my coaching company had come back, by the way, we skipped where I'd sold it. I sold the coaching business and, and by then, you know, non-compete was about up and it was time maybe if I wanted to coach again. And the whole thing, I looked at it very quickly and like, that was the one time I had total control. And, and I looked at that one. I said, so I'll never forget, I came in, said, we're going to part ways in 60 days. Everything ends amicably. And, you know, and then that's where it took some time. It took about a year of, of kind of dilly-dallying and other little goofy jobs. And, Uh, I did some medical software briefly for, (laughs) for an awesome time for about nine months before that got stressful and realized this was, this was, again, these were all short-term fixes and, you know, and then that's when the the bike shop came about. And, you know, it's funny, the bike shop got launched in 2010 in 2009 was really that flux year, right. That I'm speaking of and non-compete was up and that's where I had learned, I learned how to, uh, how to talk to a more sophisticated clientele or a more educated clientele or uh, not just bike racer guys. And, and I, I knew how to talk to executives. I could speak that language a little better. And so I marketed a product for that is I'm going to coach guys that have little time but love to ride and want to get better. And that was my product. And so I built it again. And, and it built up enough that it made sense for me just to do that so I could also give myself some space. And give you an idea, man, Like I, I had some cool cars. I sold those. <laughs> I had a cool house. I sold it. Like, Simplified. I freed everything up and could get creative, right? There was no financial stress whatsoever. I just wanted to get creative and figure out what the next step was. And so to sign up for me for coaching, you had to go and get a fitting from uh, a good friend of mine, Robert. And Robert actually hired me back when I was in high school. He managed one of the outdoors inks. And uh, so we'd always maintain friends. I've always, I've always, man, I'm, I, I kind of pride myself on maintaining friendships and relationships. And so they used to, before I'd coach you, you had to go get fitted by Robert. Now, Robert was not working in bike shops anymore. He was selling commercial real estate, but he still did fittings on the side. This was a skill set, man. He gr- he's great at it. And so all of a sudden, Robert and I are having beers just as buds and he goes, man, are these guys hitting you up to like buy bikes? And I go, yeah, <laughs> like all the time. Like they don't just ask me like what I recommend. They're like, cool, you get it. And I'm going, so we're having a beer. And he goes, man, you think like if we just open up a bike shop and just take care of the guys that you're coaching and I'm fitting, it'll break even. You know, we lay it out on paper. We're both smart dudes. It wasn't just thoughts. We're laying it out. We're like. No, man, like, let's go lease a building. Let's give it a go. And again, man, I had no idea where this was headed. Yeah. So Robert and I, Robert Taylor, he and I go and we launch this thing. We come up with these ideas and we're going to be very small. We're 550 square feet in Cooper Young, (laughs) which by the way, I hope everyone can picture what 550 square feet is. Because I want you to know that's a retail, that's maintenance, that's an office, that's a bathroom, that's a checkout, that's a fit stage. Like dude, you get efficient with space quick with 550 feet. And, yep. and uh, we did that. The lease was 500 bucks a month. We knew if it absolutely was a bomb, we could totally split the 6K we were on the hook for, right, for the one-year lease. And, and we launched, and it went nuts. Yeah, it went nuts out the gate. Hey,
1: everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet Card. It gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. Curious, you said something earlier that I thought was pretty interesting and it seems pretty pertinent to what we're talking about now, but you said selling real estate, that's where you learned how to talk to people or specifically that's where you learned how to talk to executives or you knew what they wanted, where they had little time, but they wanted to ride. What are you referencing specifically and how do you see that play out now where you learned how to talk to people or you learned how to understand people with somewhat high levels of disposable income and you knew how to hear what they were saying, but then also how to present what you needed to say in a way that you felt like it would resonate?
0: Yeah. Great question. So I talked a lot early on. You can tell I talk a lot. Um, I talked a lot early on. I started in retail at 14. You know, I'd I'd go every single, every single week, once a week, I went to Bikes Plus asking if they were hiring. They said, no, we're not hiring. Every week. My dad said, go every day. We're going to go. So once a week, we went to Bikes Plus to ask if they were hiring. So I go, I go, persistent. Finally, they hire me to shut me up, <laughs> dude. I worked there for almost three years. After that, I sold everything. I mean, I was by far the best salesman. They'll still tout me as that uh, great people. And 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 so I, I knew how to, t- but I, I knew how to talk, but I definitely did not know how to listen. I mean, man, I it was you know I was selling three and four and five hundred dollar bikes and and loving it. And so that was my, so between that and, and, and dealing with bike racer personalities, like that was my kind of sphere of influences, have you. And luckily I had a lot of great mentors and I talked a, a bit earlier on, you know, how there wasn't a lot of juniors in the, even in the state that race. So I rode with a lot of older dudes that were typically, you know, in the same category that I was selling homes to. And, and, so I was—I was, it was a, a lot of my upbringing was around really smart, affluent folks, and and they taught me how to polish, and they bought me on the head when I said something dumb or or ill-timed. That was very political or terrible timing. Yeah, so many times in my life, <laughs> and and so anyway, so real estate is where I learned how to talk to people, and and it taught me how to listen. You know, I knew going into a lot of uh, if it was a listing appointment or into a showing that based on just purely the home I grew up in and, and the list price on this home I was showing, based purely on that, I knew this was a different caliber of individual. And lo and behold, a lot of times it's not, by the way. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those. But All hat, so, no cattle. Yeah. So, But either way, you know, either way, I had this immediate respect and immediately want to listen and want to learn, right? Because I aspired to live in a home like that. Who wouldn't? Like, mm. it, it's gorgeous. Okay, so... I learned to listen, and, and that's where I learned to be polished, and that's where I learned to—I uh, watched mannerisms, and I watched how people acted, and and I changed and I adapted, man. I mean, you know, th- things changed pretty rapidly from the time I was in real estate on for the way I started to appreciate things, the way I started to like certain things, the way I started to look at certain things. It's just—it was just totally, totally different, and I know that's, that's kind of being vague, but— I'll go back on really learning how to, to, to speak to that clientele, right? Like you couldn't, you don't make a proposal for a $400 bike sale Dude, do, do you want it or not? I don't, I don't want to sound insensitive, but it's $400. Like, do do you want to ride today or do you not? When you're selling a $4,000 or a $5,000 or a ten dollars or a $15,000 bike, you have proposals. And uh, that's learning how to write. That's learning how to present. That's learning how things are portrayed. That's remembering what kind of conversation you had with them. And that's triggering it all back because now it's in writing, right? So, you, uh, Did the individual mention that they just built a vacation home in Park City? Dude, if you don't reference that and the reason why you're selling them this bike and why it makes sense for being in Park City, like... You missed it, right? And 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 that component, there you go. That's a great example. That is what you didn't have before selling real estate, is I didn't have that ability to relate, bring things full circle, really understand and connect. To let
1: them know that you were listening to everything that they were saying. So when the, you were then suggesting the one or two bikes that you were, when they read that, they were like, holy cow, he totally heard everything I was saying.
0: There's a why. You know, there's a... There, there has to be a why to everything. And it, but it, it taught me to connect. And I, you know, I say this over and over again, and I've worked with other retailers in town and when you're working with staff and trying to train people up, it's, you've got to train them to connect. And, and a lot of it is about, unfortunately, the employment pool that we have facing us right now is going to, is going to be tough, right? Like the mindset and the work ethics are going to be tough to, you know, to really lift up and really empower. And Pushing folks to connect is the hardest thing. Don't hear them, right? Like, so the, uh, the policy manual at Victory states when you come in, the first things are, we look you in the eye, we introduce herself, we shake your, obviously not shake your hand right now, but shake your hand, look you in the eye, get your name. Second question, how did you hear about us? If you say why, so I know who to thank. Like we have immediate responses to everything, but most importantly, they have to come back and tell me who that person is afterwards. And this is how I train my staff and that forces it to be genuine and it forces you to connect and not be a salesman and not just be a retailer. Like dude, connect and remember it. Like I love knowing that person's name when they enter my store, control the controllables, right? Yeah. Cause I know what they want. I know what they like. I know what their ride style is. So I already know, I don't need to go show them this new high performance wheel set if that's not their ride style. So like, it, control the controllables, learn and connect and remember and relate. And that's what real estate taught me. And, and, and that's what gave me that ability to talk that way and, and to connect within, you know, I think most all individuals, I like to pride myself. I could talk to, you know, and it's one of those that you, you don't get that skill set in a lot of, in a, uh, in a lot of jobs and occupations. And
1: Yeah, man. It's funny how so many things that we've already talked about, it applies to, Everything. Even when you talked about going to college in that business class and walking out, what I heard you say is you knew what your clients wanted through your coaching. You knew what you had done through your own, you know, being an athlete yourself. So you go back to the source, you think through what is it that really created that impact And then it's like, I'm going to look at this differently and we're trained in a way, I would argue, you know, we're trained in a way to memorize, to learn things because we're told, but you just kind of had that aha moment. And then you went back, studied, what'd you say, exercise science or, yeah? and then, but you know, what's something that's truly going to add value to what I want or what I want to learn? Which I can go back in multiple episodes where people talk about they don't read and then they find something that they love and then they become a voracious reader because it's something that they have interest in. But then you, you went back to that to find something that was non business and then it's you use a human emotion piece, you use the life experience piece, and then you go all in on that business quote unquote and then you can learn the P and L statement, all that other stuff. And it seems like a lot of us, or it's easy. I wouldn't say us because I mean I have walked out of college too, but I did go back, but it's like, you feel like you have to learn this because of who that professor is or what they're saying. And it's, you don't learn to think on your own. And and then you can carry that trait with you the rest of your life to where you don't think for yourself. You're just constantly developing your own thoughts and opinions based off, you know, what other people are telling you. So I'm hearing how you've through your own career as an athlete, but then through your own career, your own company,
0: how that kind of set the foundation and built it. Look, it's, it's, it's all of it. Right. And, and, it's simply, I just, I simply look at it as like, man, if there was a way you can make something better and there's something that you can do with your skill set, run with it. And I will a hundred percent, if I were ever in the restaurant space, right? You would give the guy that's been working in restaurants for 10 years, a hundred percent the job before the dude that just graduated with restaurant management or, or whatever the, you know, hospitality management or whatever the degree would be. And because there's no excuse, like there's no exception for hard work right? There's, there's no exception for time in the saddle is what we say in cycling. Like at the end of the day, dude, it's time in the saddle. And it's that same thing that goes into athletes and that same thing that goes into business. And, and a guy that's been working in bike shops from 14 on is going to know a lot more about retail than the guy that studied business. And he may be able to use words like P&L and... Profits and margins and and, and and shipped goods and export taxes and what are we spending on shipping and write-offs and – dude, but none of that matters if you can't sell a tube. None of that <laughs> matters if you can't look a guy in the eye and tell him what air pressure he needs to put his new mountain bike at. Like none of that matters because you'll have no numbers to add up. And that's one that just goes back to that. It's just that real world experience. And it's the same thing in cycling. And that's why like I see guys all the time. They come into the sport. They have immediate, incredible success. I like have seen some guys come into the sport that in, in two years or you'll read about folks that are three years into the sport and they're in the Tour de France making big money and, and, and literally at the, at another class and then they're out and Uh, that's, that's an anomaly by the way, but, but I do see folks, you know, and even locally that come into this sport very early on massive success. And it's one of those, like, that's not my model. Uh, Rarely is that going to be a customer of mine anyways. Like I look at folks for the long haul and that's with, you know, if it's, the training groups we offer are not about peaks and valleys. The training groups we offer are about camaraderie and building community. And that is like, that's what's sustainable. And, you know, the one time, and we'll talk about the one time I almost quit cycling is because that was what was lacking. The community. It's the community, man. And that's what was lacking. And I was so driven on that one. And so when I see folks come in real hot, that's how I look at it. And I think a lot of that comes from dropping out of school, uh, I think a lot of that comes from just time in the saddle and just experience, right? Like I've seen a lot of guys come and go, you know, I'll never forget my coach, you know, at 18, we're junior national championships. He goes, yeah, but next year, watch how few of these people are even still on the start list. And then the next year it's like, watch how many... A few still in the start list, right? Like cars are coming into play, like girls, like college, like all these outside variables. And still I'm there and I'm on the start line and I'm just timing this and I'm just learning. Because they didn't want it? They didn't want it. Or there was a distract or something else came into play. Who knows? But, but it was one like, dude, something was ingrained in me to stay there. And a lot of my learning has come from that mindset.
1: When you train people or even if somebody's going to come in about a $10,000 bike, are there things that you can look at or the ways that you can read people to know if it's just going to be a six month or two year fling, or if this person you think will keep riding and keep competing five years from now?
0: I can tell early on. How do you, what
1: do you, Super. what's the characteristics or what are the things that you see in people to where you
0: can see if certain people are going to flame out? You got to see their ability to fail. Absolutely. Uh, Man, I mean, it's God, I'm glad you're asking that. I can tell immediately and I I hope I'm bragging about that, by the way. I can tell immediately how long you're going to be in this sport. And uh, after conversation, after running through fitting and sizing with you and working with you, especially if we get to ride together a couple of times, it's one that you've not every day is great. It's an endurance sport. I mean, I'm going to use that word a lot. But it's an endurance sport. It's an endurance play. You know, but it, it's you're gonna get flat tires at the worst time. Your pro your no matter how great your product is, something's gonna fail at the worst time. Bad weather rolls in, right? Like control the control balls. We can't control the weather. Like like bad weather rolls in and ruins the race or you had a different tire pressure that, that, that now that weather denotes, or you wouldn't have chose that wheel choice for now that this wind storm that's come in, like whatever. I'm just literally, I could bounce all over of all the different variables that we can't control. And you've got to be able to take those losses and you've got to be able to move forward. And, you know, and, and I've screwed up a ton racing and and I've learned from every single one. And on that, I've also won a lot racing, and I've also learned a lot from that. And, you know, I had a great coach early on that won a really nice stage race, a regional level stage race. Uh, stage race means that there was, a, there, was, there was three races over the weekend, a road race, a criterium, and a time trial. And I'd won the the, the GC at the end, kind of like, like Lance had won the GC of the tour. Maybe a bad reference at this point, but... <laughs> But afterwards he goes, cool, you know, obviously great job, pat me on the back, like, like lifting me up. And he goes, I want you to think about how you could have won by more and, and really think about that and really think about like, did you zip up at a time that you could have waited till later and had another two seconds there? Could you have ridden the paint, meaning, uh, the painted area of the road that's far faster than the, the, the cement area of the road should you have taken a line differently than you did? Should you have gone full gas? There's so many ways, right, that that you can really micromanage that race and figure out where you could have won by more. And that was a big learning thing is knowing that you need to look at the wins the same way as you do the losses. What's an example of failing in a race the way that you talked
1: about? You talked about people's ability to fail. Can you give some an example or two of what comes to mind for like you personally in a race where you failed in a race?
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so tour of the Gila, which is uh, Gila National Forest in Silver City, New Mexico. Well, haven't been, bad, sounds pretty rally. Bad, I, look, I can't wait to go. My, <laughs> look, my head was down. I was getting buried into my handlebar at the time. So uh, I want to go back now and go ride. But, but you know, be in there racing. It was one that, you know, I go there. It's, it's, it's a pro one race and meaning pro and elite race and get there and had a, awful experience. Came right from college, literally right from college. In fact, most of the guys, uh, at that time I was racing for a team out of Memphis. Uh, that's, so this was, by the way, this the second time back in college, racing for a team out of Memphis. They're driving from Memphis. I'm just going to head over from Durango and get there. So I had all my stuff. Oh, and I was racing. <laughs> like my folks didn't pay for like a storage unit between going to and from college. So like a yeah, seven or eight day stage race. And, it was not a match. Man, it was not a match. Uh, I had plenty of fitness, but fatigued from uh, exams, you know, and the testing that you do right before you, you know, can't wait to get out of school. So fatigued from that, fatigued from everything. And uh, while fitness was okay on climbs, you know, massive climbs in the Gila National Forest, my nerves and exhaustion level, I got dropped on every descent. And I mean, dropped, you know, and it sucks being at the front end of the pack. I was little, I was light. That was my forte. And then literally getting dropped on the descents because, dude, I was riding like a three-year-old. Like I was nervous. I was an amateur, total amateur out there. And, you know, I look back on it and, yeah, there was no doubt it was fatigue and exhaustion and nervousness and who knows where that, what bell curve we're creating here. But it wasn't right and it was quickly out, quickly out. Uh, so then I went into a, uh, uh, role. It's a French term, basically a a helper role. And that sucks, right? Like you're fit. You're the man. You're about to go back to Memphis. You've been in Durango. You're coming from Hila, tour of the Hila. Like you're a fit, bad, mo, dude. I just flunked out of Hila. I mean, I'm out, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at a time limit essentially. So now I'm handing out bottles. Now I'm pumping tires. Now I'm helping my guys. And Which, by the way, that sucks, right? Because that's my first race with them for the year, coming from college. We've got a whole summer together. Terrible, terrible impression and, and, and showcase of fitness and what you can do. Uh, but I had to turn it around, right? So I had to ride when I could ride just to maintain fitness while we're there, which is painful, watching these fit dudes you want to compete with and you were supposed to be competing with, uh, as well as your teammates going into this helper role. Uh, and I think it's the way you come out of it. And we, look, we came out of that. Went and did a big race that's now on the national calendar out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's funny. I did it when I I used to do it when I was 13 growing up, and it was this tiny little race. Now it's this massive race. It's awesome. And go there. Again, it's a pro one race. And first stage is like 114 miles, maybe 118 mile road race. We knew the big climb. We knew when the climb was coming. We knew when to be ready for it. And dude, I was there, I was in the front, we crest the top, teammates are looking around, there's myself and maybe two or three others of us. And we look around, we're like, man, there's maybe seven, eight amateurs total in this, in this selection. Like this field of 150 has now dwindled down to 40 and oh my God, like dude in it, right? So like bounce back, I came back, I was on a mission. I broke the race down even more and bounce back, but that was a low, and you got to be able to take those failures and, and look, it sucks when you crash or you, or, or you go off the back in the race. But what really sucks is when you drop out of a race in Silver City, New Mexico, and you have to drive back home to Memphis and think about that. What are you doing? What are the sacrifices I'm making? I'm clearly not that good. Like how do you take that failure is totally different. And, and I am going to discount a, a, a failure in a local race versus a national race because that drive is something that, man, uh, I, I use that to get in the heads of all my athletes now. And that is, man, you don't want to do that drive back home bummed. You don't want to do that. And, and so you've got to look at everything that way. And, and I can't help but harp on that. And, and I look at people and I say, could they make that drive? Or after that drive, what would happen? Um, you know, it's funny. I use the word drive a lot in, in, in my, in my perception of people. And same thing when I'm helping people assemble a team, I always say, man, would you ride in a car with them to Nashville and back? If you go, no, they're not going to be on your team then dude. Like, and it's that same thing. Like that's, that's, that's a, that's look, judge, man, judge the character, figure out if it's going to be a personality match. But I think it's that same thing. Like, if they can make that drive home from Silver City, New Mexico, they're going to stick with it for the rest of their lives. If they can't, or they can't do it from their drive from East Memphis back to Midtown from their little local race, dude, not going to stick. It's not going to happen. You got to be able to take failures.
1: So what you're saying is just the, the willingness and ability to stretch yourself, to go for it, to enter the race in the first place, and then... When, when you either embarrass yourself or you feel embarrassed or something happens, you crash, something happens in your control, out of your control, the ability or willingness to that next morning to get up and do it again. That's, that's just what it's going to take. And that's how you identify that in people. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, I do a quick, quick, some sort of a uh, assessment. I don't, I don't know. There's, there's no, nothing really polished there, but I just do some sort of quick internal assessment on, on that. And, and, and look, I say it all the time to folks that come in the store. I want a customer, not a sale dude, I do not want to sell you this bike and you go away. Mm. that That is a terrible business model. That's a definite work harder, right? Like, I want to sell you this bike. I want you to sign up for our spin classes. I want you to join our training group. I want you to hang around. I want you to meet folks. Because then I know you'll be a part of it and you'll understand this culture of it. If not, if you're going to go buy this bike and you're going to go ride the green line on your own and do your path or whatever, dude, I give it a short shelf life. I give it a very short shelf life and, and obviously for a sustainable business, I can't have that. And with all due respect, my agenda is that you love this sport half as much as I do. I say it all the time. And it's one that if you do, I know I have a customer for life.
1: Would you say 50% of all the bikes you sell go to people like that or
0: more than that? Oh gosh, I'd have to say more. And I'd have to say more only because here's the deal. Even if you buy a bike and you wait three years to come back in, there's a solid chance, solid. I would say a 95% chance. I don't just remember your name. I remember like your dog's name or something about you or your vacation home or kind of going back to that connection. Like, dude, I remember people. And I definitely remember the bikes they buy. Like that is kind of one of those unique things. I'll be like, oh, yeah, you got the uh, the purple, that purple Raleigh. <laughs> yeah, how do you remember that with as many bikes that come in and out the door? It's like, I just remembered how much you thought it was so cute and I couldn't stand the color. You know, like like you connected, but I remembered those times and I think it's going to be a staggeringly low number. I mean, yeah, we, we, we do sell all over the world, right? So we do ship quite a bit. Um, and a lot of those are one-time transactions. Uh, a lot of those are. And that's why that Man, kudos to online retailers because that's a very tough play. That's a, that's a hard retention play when you're not getting to look and see and ride with your customers. So, yeah, I think, I think definitely if, if we were to take a percentage of online sales, it would, be, it, would pro- it would probably be accurate with what the norm is. But if you come into my store, I feel pretty confident that a good 9 out of 10, you're, you're going to be coming back for years. Mm. I hope so.
1: What was it like when you were with Robert, you were at a bar, and you were like, you know what? Let's do it. I know how to work on bikes. You know how to sell bikes. Let's go for it. Was there a sense of, aha, like, screw it. We're going to do it. Because I know there's a lot of people that even reach out to me during the week about this podcast or just people that you know, are friends of mine in life or that I've done business with. It's like they're not happy about something. They feel like there's something more. They're doing their nine to five they're in class to the way we talked about it early on, but they're scared. They're scared about either what other people think of them. They're scared about what happens if it doesn't work. They're scared about taking a 50% pay cut. Was there something in you in that season where you were like, I'm going to go for it or Robert and like, I'm going to go for it. That had a lot more humble beginnings than like where it is at right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, look, when we made the decision to do it, it was one of those that it sounded fun and the numbers made sense. And, you know, it, and really the way Robert and I really put it out on paper was essentially it was a place that we could be our office to. Like I could work on training plans when we weren't fitting somebody or training somebody. Or it was funny when we launched it, we even said, and I'll have to find, there was an article that even printed it, We believe that 90% of our business was going to be service and 10% was going to be sales. And and meaning fittings, meaning labor, fittings, maintenance, coaching. Oh, yeah, and we have your pedals here. Oh, and we have the bars you need for your fit, you know, right? Like everything was kind of built around that. In the first 28 days realized total opposite, man, this was 90-10. This was 90% sales, 10% service. And and by the way, service was still great and was above all our projections ever. So this is how, I, as I tell you, like it really, like it took off. The 90% was the one that I just quickly, like I got ingrained in it and something came over me. I took on this buyer role and man, I'm a snob. I am. And and I I firmly believe that if you dig what I'm wearing, like, like Erdler said, I firmly believe you should dig what I'm wearing. Like, cause it's, it's the right, it's the tech. There's a why to every single thing. And I want you to ask me about it, you know? And, and so I, I felt like I really had a good eye and, and that's when the sales took off. And, and it was one, you know, before we pulled that trigger, what did I think about, man, for me, it was one of those, I had time, the, the, you know, the, the small amount of financial obligations. I mean, dude, we started this business with $15,000. I, I love boasting that. Like, we didn't start, a. we didn't have a grant. Like your inventory too. Inventory, branding, website, business cards, gravel out front, signage and vinyl on the door. Yellow page, dude, 15 grand. And, and there was no memfix. And I hope you hear the sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> God, I hope somebody gets, I hope, this one I wish I had video. So you could see my face making fun of that. No, there was no grants. There was no none of that, dude. This was hard work. This was hey, we're going to put up a small amount of money. And, you know, it's funny. And early on, even just in the branding early on, before we even open the stores, I'll never forget Robert and I going, and we're consulting on everything, right? Like we're super early on partnership. I'm like, dude, how many black t-shirts should we get? And, and we're counting it out. And I was like, man, that's not enough. Like, I know all of my family will want one. Like, dude, all of our buddies will buy a t-shirt just to buy something and scratch your back. It's just like what what they do. He's like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, Definitely a bit more conservative on the buying side than me. And and then, of course, we plow through shirts. We plow through anything with our own name on it. And that was, look, a lot of that was that in vogue purchasing, right? Like that new, you're a new business. Like these are your buddies. This is what you're supposed to do. But then a lot of that folks were coming back and they were like, hey, can I get a, I want to send these to one of my, you know, my my, my sister in Albuquerque or whatever. And so then folks were asking. And then by then online had really like, Social media had really taken off for us uh, early on, and that's kind of been a forte of mine and, and, and had built this following. So now we were getting requests for people to ship us their shirt. I'm like, do people dig the brand? Uh, so this is all part of that. Literally in the first 28 days, man, everything flipped. Uh, by the way, my count ends at 28 days because my business burned down on the 28th day. I hope you enjoyed this week's
1: episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day.